Good morning, Forest Park. Great to see you guys with our lighting situation going. I can see all the people in the back today. This is great. Good stuff. You know, I don't remember the day of the week or the hour of the day. I don't remember what I was wearing or what happened before or after. For whatever reason, those details remain blurry. I do remember the confusion, the disequilibrium that settled over me like a thick cloud. I remember my innocence falling into little pieces around me. Life was slightly altered following the moment. It happened because I grew suspicious of my early childhood history. Some things in my little eight-year-old mind didn't make sense, so I began asking questions, and then I hit the jackpot. I asked my mom if the man I had been calling dad for eight years was really my dad, or was there someone else? In that moment, my mom told the truth. She told me the man I thought was my dad actually adopted me, and a man I had never heard of, met, or even knew existed was actually my dad, and he lived hundreds of miles away and had another family. So I had half-brothers and sisters and an origin I knew nothing about. What a bizarre experience. I filed it away in a folder and tucked it far in the back. I was 10, he was 16. I was naive, he was experienced. I was curious, he was accommodating. He exposed himself, touched me, and tried to do more. I got scared, didn't know what to do, told no one. The confusion, the fear, the unnerving emotions. I can't describe how I felt. It opened the door to a dark and complex world. And I filed it away in a folder and tucked it far in the back. Throughout my life, I filed a lot of things in folders and tucked them far in the back. So far, I was hopeful nobody would ever find them. The disappointments came, when the dark doors opened, when the demons howled, I convinced myself I'd be fine. And I was, until I wasn't. What about you? How many folders do you have? How far back have you pushed them? You know, grief piles up over time, doesn't it? Little by little, disappointment by disappointment, pain by pain, tear by tear, the lost job, the failed marriage, the pregnancy that wasn't, the funeral that was, the friend that lied, the request denied, the positive medical test result, the love that burned out. Some of us look at each pain and we convince ourselves we are fine and we do our best to push it far in the back and move on. And we do, except we grow heavier with each step. So what do you do with the disappointments and the pain and the tragedies that you have accumulated throughout life? Do you keep pushing them down? Do you keep filing them away? Do you keep stuffing them so far in the back you hope nobody will ever discover them? What is grief? What is it? The simplest definition I know is grief is the negative, painful emotions experienced when one season is ending and another season is beginning, and it's a season that you don't want to end. Whether it's a life or whether it's a job or whether it's a marriage, it's something you're in 
you're enjoying it, you're living it, but something happens causing that season to end and another season to begin, and you don't want it to end. Life as you knew it and experienced it is no longer. Things are different. A new chapter is turned. And some grief we can anticipate, and we know it's part of life. Lana and I, my wife and I, have been kind of in a seasonal change in our life as our kids have moved away and they have grandkids and they're thousands of miles away and we have to accommodate and go see them. And there's a little bit of grief in our hearts because they're so far from home, but that's an inevitable part of life. Kids grow up, they move away, they have kids, they're a long way from home. Maybe it's retiring, either due to longevity or health issues. It's still part of life. It's inevitable, it happens. But some grief we can't anticipate. And we can't even believe that it's part of this beautiful thing called life. An unexpected tragedy crashes into your life. Deep disappointment you never imagined would come to you. And when you experience these events, whether anticipated and accepted as part of the evolution of life or hated and repulsed as a vicious intruder, you begin to experience discouragement, disillusionment, disheartening. Those are the opposite of courage and purpose and vision and heart. In fact, there are a few of you gathered in this room, some people watching online. It's been a long time since you felt courageous. It's been a long time since you felt purposeful. It's been a long time since you have felt passion about much at all of life. Be honest. Since that thing since that day, whether it happened last week, last year, or when you were a child, since that thing occurred in your life, since that moment, every morning you got to convince yourself to put one foot in front of the other. And listen carefully. It's not because you're weak or you were born fearful or you have no desire to accomplish anything. You're discouraged and visionless and disheartened because at the core of your being, you're grieving. And before we go any further into this message, I want you to know this. I am not here today to hurry you along. I'm not here today to tell you to change and get over what happened. I will not insult you by attempting to give you three easy steps toward getting beyond your grief. No one can or should tell you to get over what happened. And neither will Jesus because he loves you too much. I'm here today and throughout this series to walk alongside you and provide a few pieces of wisdom that you might wanna pick up and put into your life for the journey ahead. That's it. And if you find some good truth today, take it, it's free. If you don't, that's okay. We're in this thing together, all right? Recently, I listened to Dr. Henry Cloud, and he was talking about grief, and I'm just doing some research, and he painted an image about the effects of grief that were so clear, so helpful. I wrote it down, and I said, I got to give that to our people. I want you to follow this for just a moment, all right? Grief doesn't live in a vacuum. In other words, grief doesn't exist by itself. 
isolated from the rest of your life. Kind of like an ornament sitting in the corner of your house or on a shelf. And when you have nothing else to do, you pick it up. You kind of pick grief up and you turn it around. And in those few moments or over the weekend, you feel your emotions, you cry your tears, and then you set it back down and you go on with life. That's not the way grief works. We might think that's the way grief works. We wish that's the way grief works because you could open the box and close the box, open the door, close the door, pick up grief, set grief down. Not the way it works. Grief lives in a folder. Remember the folder that I talked about at the beginning where I stuffed it in a folder and pushed it far in the back? It's kind of like a computer folder. And it sits on the desktop of your life. And inside that folder is all the pain and all the hurt and all the regret and all the wounds and all the things that you've stuck into that folder, it just sits on the desktop of your life. And whenever it gets clicked, everything in that folder falls out. And here's what I've learned. You are not the only one who has access to that folder. And you don't know when that folder is gonna be clicked. But when it is, everything in that folder is exposed to whomever is nearby. And it takes a while to gather all the contents and stuff them back in there. That will answer the question as to why you seem so annoyed all the time. It's why you get depressed for no particular reason. It's it's why anger just seems to rise up over something so simple. It's why you're triggered by a specific song or a place or a smell or a conversation or a memory. Each time during your life when you were wounded, when you were disappointed, when you were hurt, and you heard someone say to you, you'll be fine, or you said to yourself, I'm okay, I'm okay, or someone said to you, you're tough, or hey, that's life, or men don't cry, or come on, don't be so emotional, or you know, this generation is just so weak, won't you just rub some dirt on it and get on with life? Every time you treated that wound and that pain and that disappointment that way, you threw it all into a folder and you filed it away. And now it just sits on the desktop of your life waiting for someone or even you to click it. And you might be sitting and just talking with someone and all of a sudden, click. You might be watching a movie and a certain scene, a certain song, a certain person, a certain situation occurs and all of a sudden, click. You might be in church or at work, eating dinner, listening to music, working out, click. And all the emotions come rushing in and all the depression comes back and all the anxiety begins to well up and you lose a sense of what's going on and you don't know what's wrong with you. So where do we go from here? Two truths I want to give you today on grief, okay? The first one is you can't hurry the grief. You can't hurry it. You can't rush grief. Grief is not an obstacle course, and the winner is the one who's able to navigate the course the fastest with the least amount of damage. That's the way we kind of think about it. If I can just get through it, if I can just move on. No, grief is a process. And everyone's process looks differently. Let's go a little deeper into this and kind of expand this a little bit, all right? Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, 
She's well known for her book called On Death and Dying. She spent a long time interviewing people who were battling terminal illness and were on the edge of death. And she wrote down what she learned and the observations and all the different things. And she coined what has become known as the five stages of the grief process. And if you're familiar with them, you, you know them. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And in her later life, Kubler-Ross said that she regretted writing the stages of grief the way she did. Why? Because she said she never meant to give the impression that the stages were linear and that they happen one after the other. You first go through denial, then anger, then bargaining, then depression, then acceptance. She said she never intended for anyone to, to think through the stages in a linear fashion. And she never expected or wanted people to think of them as universal. In other words, everybody goes through them all. Her point was that people go through these deep and difficult emotions, and when you go through grief, you might experience these three, or you might experience four of them, or you might experience all of them, and you can experience them in different orders. Why am I making a big deal of this? Because in the United States, kind of our Western way of thinking, we used her observations and we created a strategy of how to overcome grief quickly. Just go through these five stages and you'll get to the other side and you'll be fine. So just tell me where you are in the process and I'll tell you what's next and we'll hurry up and get you to the final stage and the final stage is acceptance and then you can get back to life as it used to be. We're always trying to get back to the way things used to be. Very opposite of her point. In fact, it's possible that a person grieving might experience acceptance first. And they think, well, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I've already reached the final stage at the beginning. They don't even realize that maybe they're different than everybody else and they'll experience anger later. Or, or maybe then they go through bargaining. Then they go through denial. Or, or maybe you accept it at first and then you go through denial, then you go back to acceptance, then you go back to anger, then you go back to acceptance, then you go back to bargaining. See, some of you have gone through all of those emotions and you think you're broken. You're not broken. You're you. And you're, you're working through this and it's a healing process and it takes time. But we like to rush things, hurry things along. The point there's no one way to grieve, and you can't hurry it along. So much more can be said on that. It needs to be said about that, and we'll push that maybe to another series or another time. We won't get into it today. I want to get to the second truth about grief, and here's where we're going to hang for the balance of this message. Number two, never grieve alone. I want you to listen to me very carefully. We humans... We're designed to live, love, function, lose, win, flourish, celebrate, and grieve in community. In other words, we were designed to be together. We were never designed, never put together to grieve by ourselves. And when we attempt to do anything isolated from others, we immediately begin breaking down. We are not merely social beings. We're integrated beings, joined beings, united beings. We are like individual parts of a massive machine. And we are designed in a way to only make sense of life when we function together. 
Let me give you a scripture. You might not even believe what I'm saying until you see it this way. Christ is just like the human body. A body is a unit and has many parts, and all the parts of the body are one body, even though there are many. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Certainly the body isn't one part, but many. So the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Or in turn, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part gets the glory, all the parts celebrate with it. You are the body of Christ. You, 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 you are the body of Christ and parts of each other. Our modern day church is a long way from this, folks. If you are a part of the body, then the only way for the part that gets wounded to heal is when the rest of the body does whatever it needs to do to rush in and help it heal. Rush to its aid, gather around to channel energy and healing powers to that part that is wounded and broken. And the more I understand the gospel, the more I understand church, the more I understand Christianity, the more convinced I am that the only hope for the church is healthy, vibrant, authentic community. Not better buildings, not more powerful services, not bigger budgets, not slicker, more popular pastors with great lights. The only hope for the church, my friend, is around a table, not around a stage. And I mean authentic community. Not community that looks good in pictures. Not community that's easy to market. You know, the young white guy sitting next to the young black girl laughing with the older Asian gentleman in a nice suburban coffee shop, sipping a latte or tea with her Apple product showing, learning to follow Jesus, hashtag love him. Not that. Not that. I'm talking about genuine community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, very important that you understand is who he is, German theologian, in his masterful book, Life Together, which he wrote in 1939. So put a German theologian In 1939, if you know history, you know what's going on at this time in our world. Nazis are rising to absolute power, ready to rain down terror on the Jewish people. He is in Germany. He is writing to the German church. He's writing to Christians, but he's especially, you know, trying to arise and trying to awaken the German church and trying to get them to see things that they weren't willing to see, very similar to what we're not willing to see today. Listen to his words. Listen to just part of it. I'm going to explain it. It's written in 1939, from a, been translated from German into English. It's a little different. But just listen to this, and I'll explain. He says, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. What is he saying? Specifically? He is addressing the German church and he's warning them. He's saying to them, you you can talk all about love and Jesus and the church and community, but if you are not willing to commune 
if you're not willing to protect, if you're not willing to love, if you're not willing to serve your Jewish brothers and sisters, you're going to ultimately destroy true community. In general, what he's saying to Forest Park in 2023 is that everybody has an idea of what community looks like. And many of us have a picture of community that is far and away from what true genuine community is. And if we hang on to our dream when genuine community is trying to break through, we will destroy true community in our pursuit of our idea of community. Let me bring it down. Let me chew it down and kind of get it down here a little easier. Let me explain it like this. We might think community is drinking coffee and laughing with each other or watching the Super Bowl together this evening or going on a weekend trip together. And sure, it can involve all of that. And those are wonderful things and, and beautiful things. But if we stop short... And too many churches, and I fear we have done the same thing in so many areas. If we stop short of true, genuine community, ultimately we'll destroy it in our, in our attempt to hold on to what we like about community. If we stop at what we think community is and don't go on to experience genuine community, we'll be the very people who destroy the community we think we have. L let me explain it even more simple. Community is sitting with people in pain. Community is weeping when they weep. Community is celebrating when they celebrate. Community is pausing life long enough to help heal what's bruised and broken. Community lets people lean on you when they're too exhausted to stand on their own. Community is when you lean on others because you're too tired. You know what community is? Community says, you are welcome to sit with me at the table because we are both in need of being fed. Community says, you are welcome to share your story with me because you have something to say and I need to hear it. Community says, you are welcome to confess your sins to me because I doubt they are greater or uglier than mine. Community says, you are welcome to doubt with me, to laugh with me, to cry with me, to fall with me, to rise with me, to sing with me, to sit quietly with me, to be cynical with me, to be faith-filled with me, to love with me, to pray with me, to be yourself with me because we are human and that's what humans do. Community says, I am not me without you. Community says, I am at my best only with you. Community says, I see more clearly when I look through your eyes too. Community says, I slowly dry up and wither without you. And I am absolutely convinced that this kind of Christianity returned to North America, a lot of Christians would walk away never to follow again, but a whole lot of sinners would run into it. And this, my friend, is where we are to drag grief. Grief is to be taken into that kind of community. But here is where Bonhoeffer's warning has got to be heeded. When I say take our grief into community, I don't mean just a Sunday morning gathering or a special service where some super Christian prays a magical prayer and poof, all your grief goes away. I don't mean you become a special unspoken request at four churches around town. I don't mean a 
lot of Christians mention your name through a prayer chain. You know what I mean? I mean, you drag your grief and your loss and your pain and your disappointment and your hurt and your sorrow and your anger and your questions and your sleepless nights and your tasteless meals and your nightmares into community. And you know what? We sit with you in it. And we shut up and we hold you. One struggle the modern day church has and modern day Christians have is we don't know how to be quiet. We're too loud. We're too flashy. We're too fast. And we're too slick. And we got to learn to sit and keep our mouths quiet and listen and learn from the parts of the body who are hurting and hold them until they heal. Again, Bonhoeffer. Many people are looking for an ear that will listen. They do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking where they should be listening. But he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. He will be doing nothing but prattle in the presence of God too. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life and in the end, there is nothing left but spiritual chatter and clerical condescension arrayed in pious words. One who cannot listen long and patiently will presently be talking beside the point and be never really speaking to others. Albeit he be not conscious of it, he thinks he's really making a big difference when he's not. Anyone who thinks that his time is too valuable to spend keeping quiet will eventually have no time for God and his brother, but only for himself and for his own follies. Let me make it real simple. We need to shut up and listen to those hurting among us and quit trying to rush their healing and just sit with them and bring Jesus to them in the middle of their pain and love them until they're healed. Attempting to be a Christian without community is impossible. There's no such thing as a Christian outside of community. It's impossible. Everything about following Jesus is rooted in and flows out of community. Dissolve community and you dissolve Christianity. Think, think about the two sacred ordinances we practice at Forest Park. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism, Preston talked about it a moment ago. We're doing it in two weeks. It is not merely about announcing your faith. It is that, but it's so much beyond that. Baptism is about committing to the body of Christ, entering into community with these people. Baptism says this, now that I have begun to follow Jesus, I refuse to try to do it on my own, by myself, alone on this journey. I refuse to hide out in the back and make it a quote-unquote personal faith. No, I commit to the body of Christ. I announce my faith to everyone, and I say, see, I'm following Jesus, and you can count on me. The Lord's Supper Bread and wine, the presence of Christ himself, us taking in and consuming Jesus, his body, his blood. How much more intimate can personal can that be? And the Lord's Supper is to be done in a gathering of fellow believers. It is the most intimate and up close and personal exercise you can ever experience. And it's all done in communion, community. What does all this have to do with grief, Scott? So 
Experiencing grief and eventually putting your life back together again has to do with becoming whole. And we are only whole when we're together. And too often the church isn't focused on wholeness, but success. Wholeness takes time. Wholeness isn't slick or pretty or marketable. Holiness is about, wholeness is about honesty and vulnerability and transparency. Wholeness is about slowly cleaning out the folder. Now, let me bring this down. Here's what I know about you. Grief has affected us more than we know. The way you see life, your place in life, in your world, whether God is active or passive or absent, whether you trust people, how you define love, all of it is experienced through the grid of grief. Grief has caused some of us to be bitter, others angry, some depressed. Grief has affected our marriages, our friendships, our futures. Grief is the catalyst for some of our addictions, our affairs, our drinking binges. Grief has affected us in more ways than we know. And here's what I also know. You think as long as you hold it all together for others, grief won't get you. Hear me clearly. Grief is patient. It waits. It sits on the sidelines and patiently waits for you to slow down. You, my friend, will be dead long before grief ever will. So where's our hope? One day, Jesus walks into the synagogue, the holy place, and he announces. He doesn't suggest. He doesn't put it up for a vote. He announces. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Where's your hope? Right there, my friend, in Jesus. Where's your hope? Right there, my friend, in the one who is life, the one Ashton sang about a moment ago. We speak Jesus over every anxiety, Jesus over every depression, Jesus over every grief, every single thing that you got going on in your life. It is in his body, in his presence, in him there is life and wholeness. Now, when I got finished with this message, I underlined those three, those four little phrases there, the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. I thought, you know, what a great thing to put over the front of a church. The poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. The poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. If you're not in one of these four categories, don't even come in. Don't even come inside. This is what we're about. We're about the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. And if you don't find yourself in one of those four categories, you're the problem. So I'm not one of those four. I know that's the issue. That's the issue. Because there's not a person in this place, there's not a person watching that isn't somewhere in one of those four. You just don't see it. You don't understand yourself. That's another message. 
One more passage, one more passage, and we're done. James 5. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. So what? You may be healed. You may be healed. You may be healed. Holding on to sin, holding on to wounds, holding on to addictions, holding on to secrets, holding on to things that have happened to you, holding on to all of that stuff, it doesn't just make you guilty, it makes you sick. Sick. And it's when we open ourselves, we say, here's the truth about who I am. And here's what my problem is, and here's where I'm failing, and here's what's happened to me, and here's what people has done to me, and here's the things that I've been dragging with me everywhere. And when we confess those things, and we are loved in our dirt, we are embraced like the prodigal son was embraced when he smelled as bad as he smelled and his father embraced him. There's something about being held when you are dirty. There's something about being squeezed in love when you are at your worst that just brings a healing that you've never experienced before. Last thing, last thing. Have you ever... Have you ever wondered why tears come out of your face? Say, no, I've never thought about it. Well, think about it. I mean, our, when our bodies were designed, tear ducts could have been placed anywhere. Even internally, we could have just drained inside. I mean, why, why, why in our face? Why make a mess everywhere? The tears on your face aren't for you. You already know you're hurting. The tears are so other people can know you're hurting. So when they look in your face, they know part of their body needs help. and we ought to be close enough to one another, we can see the tears. Close enough to one another, we can see when the tear falls, and we rally around, and we love them back to health. That's what we do with our grief. Dr. Cloud said something that struck a chord with me, and it, it so resonated with me because of the way I grew up. He said this passage here, for a long time, I used to think this passage was confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so you can be holy. And I was always wanting to stay holy, stay holy, stay holy. So I needed to confess so I could stay holy. And the older I get and the more I understand Christianity, the body of Christ, I realize it's not about staying holy. It's about staying whole. It's about making sure I don't let wounds fester and I don't stay sick. Because I've learned my sickness doesn't stay with me. My sickness spreads around. And I want to be whole so my kids and my wife and my grandkids 
I want to be whole so you have a better shot at being whole. Because not only can we heal one another, we also can infect one another. So we confess and we come clean so we can be healed and whole. Would you please stand? Father, all across this place, you know our hearts. You know what's going on in our lives. You know those who are struggling so deep. Their hearts are broken. Their minds, their past, their present. There are people who came today just because of what we're talking about. Because in their life they need healing. They need freedom. And they want to experience joy again. God, I pray for your presence and your spirit to bring us together as a body in this place so tightly, so unified, so closely knit that we can see the tears in each other's eyes and we can love one another back to health and wholeness. We can bring the healing of love and mercy and grace and compassion and patience and gentleness with each other. We can hold one another. Father, your word promises that where two or three are gathered together in your name, there you are. So God, as we gather together, don't let it ever be just about lights. Don't let it ever be just about a performance. God, don't let it just be about that was a great experience. God, I pray that it's an encounter, an encounter with you, an encounter in this body and let healing and wholeness define this church. In Jesus' name.